So this evening's reading is from Daniel 5, which you can find on page 889 in most of your church Bibles. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver tablets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in in the gold gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing, and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts to yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the, kings he, he want, those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant, And hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. 
He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank them, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. This is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Right, well, in last week's examination of the book of Daniel, we saw clearly two sides of God's character. On the one side, there is the supreme God who can humble anyone, um, including the most powerful king in the known world, who acts proudly and who doesn't recognize God's authority. And we saw also the loving God. They are one and the same, but they have a person, a character. Uh, That is the loving God whose aim is not to crush men's egos and leave them to wallow, but the restorative God, the God of the fresh start, who picks up the proud who have been humbled and in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, give him back his royal power with even greater honour than before. Now, um, this is how... uh, during his period of madness that lasted for seven seasons. Yeah, this is how uh, William Blake, around about 1800, depicted him, that he turned into like a wild animal. You could speculate all evening as to what kind of uh, mental illness he happened to have then. But uh, that is our God, who both humbles us and exalts us. But we have to be humbled before we can be exalted. Now at the time that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest emperor in the known world, and this turnaround by God had been achieved because Daniel was prepared to speak truth to power and to give God's message to that king. He was in a position to do so because of his abilities and his education and the position that he had uh, risen to. And he spoke what God had said, the hard words and the gentle words, the words of rebuke and the words of restoration. Well, by the time we get to Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar has uh, long been dead. He did reign, though, for 40 years, but he died in 562 B.C., 
um, after eventually Nabonidus succeeded him as king. He didn't like living in Babylon, so he lived in northern Arabia um, there. We don't know why. And this meant that Belshazzar's son, quite possibly Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, is in charge, and he is effectively the number two in the kingdom. And in case you think the Bible has it wrong in calling Belshazzar Nebuchadnezzar's son, it's worth pointing out that in their culture, they often, very often, um, called grandsons sons, and they even called successors who weren't in the bloodline sons too. And that explains why later on, Belshazzar is only able to offer Daniel the third place in the kingdom. So these were turbulent times. The creation and the expansion of the empire under Nebuchadnezzar was now on the wane. Vassal states that had been conquered now started flexing their muscles. And the uh, Medo-Persian empire under Darius was rising. And in God's hands would be used to defeat the proud Babylonians and liberate the Jews so that they could continue in their fulfilment of God's grand plan, his great drama of salvation. So these other states were on the offensive. These were the last days of the Babylonian Empire, and this chapter 5 is one of contrasts uh, between Nebuchadnezzar, the, um, the first king we encountered, and Belshazzar, the one who is in chapter 5. And it's deliberately done by the narrator. He invites a comparison between the two. For both were proud despots, one who learned his lesson and one who did not. We may not be in such positions of power, but I think everyone can be divided on that basis. So first of all, we look at Belshazzar, the man who tried to forget. We have the king's banquet. This is how Cézanne, the uh, French, I think, um, artist, depicted it. It is an orgy. I think when I showed this, when we did a kind of overview of Daniel in the morning service, someone was, was shocked. So if you find it too shocking, forgive me. So, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, it's clear from 5.13 that the Medes and the Persians were closing in such times may have promoted the uh, possibility of a palace coup. You know, topple the king, ingratiate yourselves with the newbies who are on the way. Maybe you'll survive and you won't get the chop too. Now, was this an attempt of Belshazzar to head off a possible coup by ingratiating himself with the Babylonian uh, nobility? Or was it a case of fiddling whilst Rome burns? One final escapist party before they'll all be slaughtered. Now, contrary to protocol, Belshazzar had his entire harem present for what was quite obviously a drunken orgy. 
And this seems to be one with religious overtones. For we read in verse 3 that they brought the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wines, concubines, etc., drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. I wonder whether Belshazzar superstitiously attributed this imminent fall of Babylonians' fortunes to, how he might have seen it, Nebuchadnezzar's neglect of the ancient gods. Is he here deliberately using the artefacts of the Most High God, stolen from the temple in Jerusalem 60-odd years before, in a pagan orgy of drunken debauchery designed to placate those old Babylonian gods? If he is, then this is a deliberate act against Yahweh, the God of the Jews, whom Nebuchadnezzar, had gone over to. He's treating the Most High God with contempt. Now God, as you know, has no grandchildren. Every generation has to make up its own mind, has to pledge their own allegiance. No one can do it for us once we are of age. True, you can get some wonderful Christian dynasties, but sadly some Christian tragedies where the children of wonderful Christian parents go off, sometimes into, literally, an orgy of drink, drugs and promiscuity. And it must be very painful. Like the prodigal, we pray for their return to their senses and to their roots when we see it. Now God responds to Belshazzar's public contempt of him by striking terror into his life. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Notice the king watched. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together. His legs gave way. The Jewish listeners must have had a really good laugh as this was read out and how the wise men of Babylon were wheeled in to bail him out. Verse 7, the king called out for the enchanters and the rest of them to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men, as the magi, came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. This is how uh, Rembrandt depicts it. Now, some commentators suggest that it was written in a language that the wise men were unfamiliar with. But I think others might be nearer the mark when they suggest that they couldn't read it because they couldn't see it. There's nothing in the passage which suggests that anybody other than the king could see what was on the wall. 
And actually, that would make a very good parallel, a much closer parallel, with Nebuchadnezzar. You remember? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He didn't tell anybody what that dream was, but Daniel knew what it was. And here, if only the king can read it, and only Daniel knows what it says, that's a perfect parallel. Same situations, two people have the same chances, they respond very differently. So I don't think the text demands that other people could see it. It may well be that only Belshazzar saw it. If you read the text carefully, rather than look at the picture, only the king is terrified. Everyone else, all the nobles, are just simply baffled. He's terrified because he's seen an apparition, a hand writing on the wall. As the king grew more and more terrified with all the colour drained out of his face, the nobility just don't know what's going on. If they had seen it, I suggest that they would have been terrified too. Instead, they're just baffled about the king's antics. They must have thought he was losing it again. But somebody is cool in the crisis. Let's look and see who. Verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. Well, who is she? Well, she's not the queen in a literal sense because um, Belshazzar's uh, wives are already at the party. She's obviously somebody with some gravitas. She is able to walk straight in unannounced. I think the NIV margin has got it right, though more probably she is the queen grandmother, given that Nabonidas is away in Arabia, presumably with his wife. This woman is the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. And this may well explain her tone of disapproval about all that's going on. Verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, called Belteshazzar, was found to have been a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel's Babylonian name is Belteshazzar and the king is Belshazzar. Just a T and an E, different. So she realises that Belshazzar is not just the worst for drink, nor that he's hallucinating, but rather that he's had a divine vision, just like her husband all those years ago had had. And just like then, it was time to call in Daniel to give the divine interpretation of this divine revelation that both the king and the prophet were privy to. Now it's now 540 BC. Daniel was taken into captivity in 605 BC as a teenager. He's doing pretty well, isn't he? He's well into, well into his 80s. So they bring him out of retirement. 
They bring him in from the margins because he'd probably been sidelined by uh, Belshazzar. Um, he'd not been in vogue since the days of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And his influence was probably not appreciated at that time. Not the kind of thing that the new management wants to hear. But Belshazzar is desperate. And in his desperation, he'll turn to anyone he thinks might be able to help him. So we read verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles, my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this, writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Well, Belshazzar is desperate. It's interesting, isn't it, that someone who has been so contemptuous of the God of the Jews now turns to one of their leading figures for help. How many people confidently deny God's existence or God's values, but in a time of personal crisis, turn to a Christian they know for advice and support? We move on, verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, even though you knew all this. Belshazzar, you see, had known what had happened to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 23. He would have been a young man in the king's court in those days when it happened. But he ignored it, he suppressed it, he pushed it out of his frame of reference and he did not profit from it. He didn't learn from the wise ones, those who'd gone before him. So Daniel call, recalls Nebuchadnezzar who had been just like Belshazzar in many ways, inflated by their position and egged on by their narcissism, 
they failed to factor in the controlling hand of the Lord, the Most High God, who then intervenes in their lives, who gives them an unmistakable warning from an unmistakable prophet who in Nebuchadnezzar's case says what the dream is without being told, as well as interprets it. And in Belshazzar's case, can read what I think only the king can see and interprets it. But there is one big, obvious difference. For Nebuchadnezzar, there was a prospect of hope because he turned to the Most High God. But there will be no such hope for Belshazzar, who will not. We read, you have, humbled, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone which cannot see, or hear, or understand that you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Now Daniel fearlessly denounces the blasphemous presumption of this pretentious monarch who he is quite convinced the Most High God can legitimately call to account. He may not have been privy to the revelation of God through the history of the Jews for the previous 1,500 years, but he did have the example of the conversion of his predecessor and grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, who, humanly speaking, was a greater king than Belshazzar had been. But nonetheless, this greater king humbled himself before the Most High God. Belshazzar should have humbled himself too. Instead, he blatantly challenges the Most High God by a deliberate act of sacrilege using the sacred vessels from the Jerusalem temple which marked the presence of God on earth in a drunken orgy, in a last-ditch stand to propitiate the pagan gods of Babylon before he was going to get well and truly walloped by the Medes and the Persians. Like Pharaoh before Moses, Belshazzar shakes his fist at God and says, though it's not recorded, but this is what... Pharaoh said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And like Pharaoh, Belshazzar would pay the price for his hardened arrogance. This man who tried to forget has become a frightened man and the man who would not learn will now become a condemned man. And we read the inscription, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. 
Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. These three words are the names of the weights used in market trading in the Babylonian market on Saturdays. The underlying thought being of Belshazzar being weighed in the scales of divine justice. And Daniel has cleverly woven a pun around each of these words, linking the Aramaic noun to a similar sounding verb in order to reinforce the theme of being weighed in the scales of divine justice and found wanting. Minah is the first weight and means numbered. Daniel says God has numbered Belshazzar's days and found that he has reached his sell-by date. Tekel, which can mean shekel, um, means weighed. God has weighed Belshazzar's life and found it light on goodness. And parsin, the plural of Perez, denotes half shekels and half minars. This means two things for Belshazzar. First, divided, which is what his kingdom is going to be. And secondly, Persia, for God has appointed Belshazzar's executioner and it is the Medes and the Persians. And then we have this pathetic scene of Belshazzar trying to bribe Daniel in the hope that Daniel might call off his God. 29, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But there's no buying off of God. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So the message is pretty clear. We are all accountable to God. God has made us, and by his grace, we enjoy all the benefits of this life. He doesn't tell us when we're going to be called to account, but called to account we shall be. And there will be no comfort by being in solidarity with others because we will be alone. We face God alone, whether we die or whether he calls us before him when he returns. But either way, our day of reckoning will come. Now Nebuchadnezzar realised that um, in time, and he got into line with God, pledged his allegiance and amended his ways. Belshazzar did not. The narrator is subtly putting a question to us, his readers. Have we learnt from the lives of these two men? Now for the Jews in exile, this was a message. But no matter who the current despot was who oppressed them, he was ultimately under the authority of their God. And they needed to know that in the face of this pagan superpower, that their God, whilst they were in exile, away from the promised land, away from the place on earth in the temple where God's presence was, that their God was still in control of everything and everybody. There was warning and challenge to their tyrant, but encouragement and comfort to them as the people of God. 
and for us in the 21st century, at a time when we are often left out of public debate, where we have been alone, a lone Christian at college or at work or in our extended families, it is reassuring to know that God will have the last word. So we should challenge the ultimate motive of personal convenience and selfishness, which is the driver behind the whole kind of uh, shift in the last 50 years of people's predominant motivating attitude which is basically personal peace and comfort and selfishness. And that is why, since the 1960s, a whole load of things have been introduced as being acceptable in society. Abortion on demand, effectively. Incredibly easy divorce. The desire that we now have to change the law on assisted suicide and even like in Belgium and Holland, the deliberate killing of someone. Each change in law starts with the hard cases and the promise of limited use but ends in, all, in almost all cases being permitted and widespread misuse. All these attacks on the value and significance of human life. And they make us more callous as individuals and our society more dehumanised as a result of it. Because we don't value people, just ourselves. Now we need to challenge that attitude with evidence. There was a a slavery abolitionist called uh, James Russell Lovell. He was obviously a very talented guy. He was a lawyer, a poet, an academic, even a diplomat. He was even the American ambassador to the United Kingdom. But he was a poet. And in his poem, The Present Crisis, written in 1844, when he was advocating abolitionism, the, you know, the end to slavery, that was a verse, there's a verse he wrote, which was quoted by Martin Luther King in the 60s. It's this. Oh, that was just the, the, the previous one. That's Cyrus's cylinder in the British Museum, so we not know a lot about Cyrus. Anyway, um, this is the, the, the verse. Careless seems the great avenger, history's pages but record. One, one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Well, I don't know whether Russell knew it, but he summed up the message of Daniel. So take heart, the writing is on the wall. God will have the last word, so we must not be afraid to debate the truth. Just as good science supports the notion of a creator, so good socio-economic evidence supports God's wisdom in his preferred life choices. Often out of difficult times comes good. Belshazzar and Babylonia was replaced by Darius the Mede 
and Cyrus the Persian. Either that's the same person with different names, both Median and Persian, or Darius was Cyrus's general. Nobody really knows. But what that meant when they took over was that uh, under Cyrus, the exiles were allowed to return to Judah and to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, to re-establish themselves as the people of God and were back on track, working towards the time when he himself would come in the person of the Messiah in their particular setting. And that brings us finally to the other purpose for which this book was written. It was written not just to comfort and reassure the believers, but to actually discomfort the unbeliever. The book of Daniel is unique in the Bible in being written in two languages. It begins and ends in Hebrew, but all the stories of chapter uh, um, 2 to 6 are in Aramaic, which was the lingua franca, the language of international business of that time. Just as in the New Testament times, uh, Koine Greek or Common Greek was the, the language of commerce. And that's why, of course, the New Testament is written in Greek so that the non-Hebrews could understand it and be converted. And that's why these stories, which were possibly almost evangelistic tracts to publicise what God had done in the middle of Babylon, that they were there to convert these Babylonians. So if God could convert Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, God can convert anyone. A real challenge to anyone proud enough to hold God at bay. The God who holds your life in his hands will one day, sooner or later, hold you to account. Your days are numbered. They are to be weighed in the balance. Self-rule will come to an end. It's only a matter of time before you are held to account. Sometimes through crises in life events, you stop. Your conscience is awakened. What you do but has been suppressed comes to the forefront of your mind again. You realise your vulnerability and God is providing you with yet another opportunity to come to your senses and affirm your allegiance to him. He provided such an opportunity to both Nebuchadnezzar and to Belshazzar. One took it, one rejected it. The question is obvious. Which will you be? Like the fool whose pride comes before a fall, or like the wise man who fears the Lord and turns and follows in his ways? Let us pray. Well, from this passage we have some very simple lessons to learn that God is still in control of this universe and our world and our lives and we will be held to account for the life 
he has given each of us. And we pray that we might use aright the time left to us here on earth, time to repent of our sins and turn in allegiance to the Lord Most High and follow in his ways, grateful for our restoration. Amen.